tuned into How to OT, making research more accessible and more consumable for the occupational therapy practitioner. Here's your host, Matt Brandenburg. And on today's episode of How to OT, we share an awesome interview with Dr. Sherry Muir, where we explore primary care as an emerging area of practice for occupational therapy practitioners, discuss how you can break into that field, and how to demonstrate your OT skill set to other professions. Let's get to the interview. So I'm here today with Dr. Sherry Muir, who is a certified occupational therapist, a PhD, and the current program director of occupational therapy at the University of Arkansas and University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences dual program. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Yes, I am too. So for this interview, I wanted to ask you about uh, the role of occupational therapy in primary care. Um, You're considered to be one of the founders of occupational therapy practice in primary care. Can you share with us what led you to study and pursue kind of finding a place for OT in primary care? I guess it's been a long time coming, honestly. I believe that OT is such a very broad and holistic treatment. And I feel like over the years, we've sort of narrowed our focus in a lot of different places. And so for me, this kind of all started when I would be at the ball games with my daughters and someone would say, you work in medicine, right? I have this thing. And that was always, you know, they would ask me questions and I would you know, give them recommendations. For example, I I need to pack my lunch. My doctor says my blood sugar is too high, but I don't, you know, have time for that or whatever. And then I would give them recommendations on how to, you know, how to work healthy cooking into their daily routine or, or whatever it is, taking their medicine on time and exercise for an injury. And they would often say, well, you know, if someone would have just told me that, I would have been more compliant. So I started thinking, why are we waiting for people to have a catastrophic injury or for children to be so delayed? Why aren't we working way up front when people actually come to the doctor because this thing is bothering them, whatever it is, and we, we could help them in a holistic way by changing their habits and routines? So that's sort of where it started um, at ball games or whatever. And then over time, that just really grew. That's awesome. I think that really highlights the importance of occupational therapy's role in preventative health and how kind of stepping into this emerging area of practice being primary care can emphasize OT's role in preventative health and hopefully lead to better health outcomes for people that we work with and, and treat. Yeah, I'm glad that makes sense. I mean, to me, I think that we're trained, I kind of call it the lens through which we see the world. And I think in OT education, we've done a really good job at cultivating that lens through which we see the world. But then when we get into the work world, we're not allowed to utilize that lens maybe is a way to put that. And so if we step back and use that lens and be more holistic and more proactive, then I think what we can, honestly, I think we can change primary care. 
That's that's awesome. That's exciting to hear. And I know I want to learn more about it. And as I did mention, this is kind of an emerging area of practice. So I thought it would be a good idea to give me and our listeners some background before we dive too much into it. So I want to ask you if you can maybe share a definition of primary care or maybe share with us how current care is provided in primary care. Well, I think the way that um, historically primary care has been provided in this country, and this is very definitely not around the world, but in this country, we really primarily do symptom management. So, you know, if someone comes into the office and their blood sugars are too high, then our first line of defense seems to be, you know, writing a prescription for them. Or you come in and you complain that your hands hurt when you sleep, we may refer you to therapy, but generally we're going to just put you on an anti-inflammatory and tell you not to do repetitive strain injuries. But that's what we're told and not much more. And so this symptom management has sort of been our definition of well-being. But the World Health Organization really has a much more holistic view of health. And so that it's really about wellness and participation instead of only lack of disease or lack of symptoms. And so whether you love the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare, as it's more commonly known, whether you love that or hate that, and there are definitely some serious challenges with that, I believe that the intent of the Affordable Care Act was really to revise primary care and to make it more holistic. And so they attempted through that legislation to encourage interdisciplinary teams and a more proactive approach. Unfortunately, what they didn't also do is include payment for those forms or for those interdisciplinary teams. And so it was a good idea that didn't have sufficient detail to make it possible. So the Affordable Care Act's definition, loosely quoted, is that primary care is where most people enter the healthcare system and where they get the majority of their care. And in this country, we do that some, but we also tend to jump and get a lot of specialists as well. You know, we'll go to an internist or we'll go to a pediatrician and I'm not criticizing that. I'm saying that's kind of unique to the United States and the rest of the world. They generally, all things go through primary care. Very interesting. Thank you for sharing that kind of a a background. And I want to ask as well to follow up, how does occupational therapy fit into this primary care treatment model? Well, I think that there are sort of two models kind of emerging. Um, And I'm a strong advocate of one and not so much of the other. And so to me, the one I don't really advocate is what I call a co-located clinic. So there will be an OT or a PT clinic in the same building or attached to the primary care clinic. And to me, that's just outpatient therapy sitting next to primary care, and it doesn't really have the integration that I envision or that I hope for us. So my vision of primary care, integrated primary care, is that we are in the offices with the physicians, PAs, and nurse practitioners. We are right there as a team member. We're located in that space 
we huddle with them, we consult with them, we're available for every patient instead of a referral. And also in my vision, (laughs) this doesn't surprise anyone who knows me, but I don't really like the model that the physician is at the top of the medical hierarchy and they decide who sees who, you know, who gets referred, who doesn't. To me, a more realistic and effective model is that everyone is uh, is on equal footing in the primary care, working what what we call in the in the research now, working at the top of their license. And what that means is that professionals will do the things that they are skilled, trained, qualified, and competent to do and with free access. So you don't wait for a referral, but you get to do what you're most qualified to do. And that frees up the other people on the team to do what they're most qualified to do. So one example of that would be that the physicians who are really the best diagnosticians, so they're freed up from working with people who might have chronic pain, who who need a minor medication review, but not a lot of change. The physicians would be seeing those acutely ill people who need diagnosis or the medically complex cases. And the other folks on the team, the PAs, the nurse practitioners, the occupational therapists, would be seeing the people who have chronic conditions, who need follow-up for mental or behavioral health. There are other people on the team who are as qualified to do those follow-ups and sometimes, honestly, more qualified than the physician to treat some of those, especially behavioral health, um, recurring uh, chronic disease kinds of things. So I guess that was a long way to say, to me, the best model is a really, truly integrated one where everyone is working at the top of their license as equal team members who have access to each other, who can utilize the expertise, but aren't sitting in a room waiting for a referral. I love this kind of integrated approach to healthcare and, and specifically primary healthcare in, in this case. Um, it sounds so interprofessional and so collaborative, which can be a really positive thing for, for clients. You know, I've done interprofessional education for many years, and one of, the, one of the groups that we did included medical students, fourth-year medical students. And when they interacted regularly with the interdisciplinary team on cases, you know, PT, OT, pharmacy, social work, medical family therapy, like all of the team members, one of the common responses from them was, this takes so much pressure off of me. I realize I don't need to know everything. I have highly qualified team members who know more about a lot, and that's okay. You know, one of the things that when I speak about primary care around the nation, someone always asks me, well, how do you get past the physician's resistance? And I always laugh because I I say to them, they're not resistant, they're just exhausted. I mean, if if you really understand what's happening in primary care, there are some physicians who have 5,000 patients on their caseload, but 3,000 is normal. And no one person can manage that caseload. 
And so what we have to do is demonstrate how we can reduce the stress and strain on the physician so that they can then do the things that they're most qualified to do. They're not resistant. They're grateful if you can come in and make less work for them, not more. Absolutely. And that logically makes sense. Who wouldn't want to have their job made easier by a skilled professional? Right. To follow up with that, I want to ask you what specific skill sets of occupational therapy practitioners qualify them to be successful primary care providers? You know, this is sort of a a who's on first dilemma, like which one comes first, because I think that the most qualified are people who have had really broad experience. And I say that making fun of myself because I've never worked in pediatrics. And so that's the hardest piece for me when I'm in the clinic. And it takes a lot of work and effort and phone a friend sometimes. But And that's why I think maybe students with some good supervision or new graduates might be great because they have all of that holistic view and haven't spent, you know, 20 plus years in adult rehab. So, you know, specifically to answer the question, I think that it takes an occupational therapist with a really holistic view of uh, realizing and understanding that it's really your behaviors, habits, and routines that most impact health. So I don't think that uh, the great OT needs to know all of the medical diagnosis and all of the medicine and all of those kinds of acute medical things. You have highly skilled professionals right there at your side to know that. What we need to be able to do is look through that OT lens and really look at habits, routines, ADLs, you know, of all levels. And there are some personality traits that I think are important. And so at least in the clinics where I've worked in, you really need to be flexible. You don't know from moment to moment who you're going to be seeing or, um, you know, what diagnosis are coming in. So you need to have a really good tolerance for the unknown if that makes you super anxious, that may not be the place for you, but, um, but you need to be highly flexible. You need to enjoy being a lifelong learner and stepping into your cubicle or your office for two seconds and looking up a diagnosis that you've never heard of or what is the most effective screening tool for this thing. You need to be able to do that. And I think you do need to have a level of self-confidence and assertiveness because often in the, in the hullabaloo, the craziness of a day, I mean, so many times I've heard, oh, Sherry, I have a patient that would really benefit from you, but I don't have time. And then you have to say, oh, no, 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 we're going to make time. Like, I'll bring Bob over here into my office, but He's here now because his shoulder's really bothering him or his depression is so great that he can't get out of bed and go to work, but he made it here. So I need to see him today. So you have to be nicely assertive as well. Thank you. Those are some specific skills um, that you highlighted. And it's really painting a picture, at least for me, of what OT and primary care looks like. And I want to ask you along with that, Uh, If you could share a clinical example or maybe a couple even of your experience in occupational therapy and primary care, Uh, maybe an example of how something you did improved the health outcome or well-being of a client. 
Sure. I think, gosh, there are so many of them, and I'll try to highlight some that I haven't highlighted um, in some of my presentations. But um, I, one of the things that I jokingly said to the, the clinicians is because it's hard to explain which clients to refer to, to OT, right? Because we can help so many people. And so I said to them, you know, if you have that patient who is just annoying you, like they're here all the time, they come in time and again, and no matter what you do, they're not better, or they, they're quirky and you can't figure out, you know, you just can't figure it out and you're frustrated or you're exhausted. That's a great patient for, for me to see. And so one of the physicians came down one day and say, okay, I have one of those patients who is just a pain in my side and I have no idea. She has this arm pain and I can't find it and I, nothing I do helps. So will you see her? And I said, sure. You know, so she was a pretty young, 24 or so, I think. And she had this pain right in, um, in her, uh, sort of like in her elbow crease. And when especially happened when she was driving, it would get worse. And the doctor just could not, he's tried anti-inflammatories. He gave her some general stretching, nothing seemed to work. And so when she came down, I really just started gently palpating around on that arm and I, right around that elbow region, and I found this really deep pocket of edema, just this, you know, pretty good sized, um, but subtle uh, pocket of edema. And so I brought the physician in and I said, you know, I want, I want you to feel this because when I put pressure here, it seems to exacerbate her pain. And so he started palpating around and he had not found that spot. And so I said, if you think it's safe, I can do some, you know, edema reduction techniques on there, or I can wait until you, you know, do some testing. If you need to aspirate that, you know, you tell me, but I, I think this is the cause of your problem. And so he thought about it for a minute and, you know, felt around on there and he said, no, you know what, I think I'd like to start with you doing some edema reduction techniques. And if that doesn't make it go away, then we'll pay for some additional, you know, we'll ask for some additional testing that will cost more, of course. So I did, I, you know, taught her some um, edema reduction techniques with massage, doing it the right way, which is starting proximally instead of distally uh, so often. We teach people to start at the farthest place from, from their heart and then push the fluid towards the heart. But what I explain to my students and my patients is that whatever is blocking the fluid from coming back into the body, if you, don't, if you don't get rid of that first, so like the first row of cars in the traffic jam, you have to get rid of the first row of cars in the traffic jam, then the next row, then the next row. So that's a good visual for patients. So I helped her find the spot. I taught her how to do that massage, you know, encouraged her to use uh, heat before, ice after. And within, I mean, I worked on her for 10 minutes at most. And within that time, her pain dramatically reduced. And so she really felt confident that she could go home and continue that process. And within, I called her like three days later and I said, hey, you know, Sally, I just want to know how you're doing. And she said, you know, Sherry, the lump is gone and I have no more pain in my arm. And so to me, what a great example of a, I don't know, 15 minute treatment maybe 
that really just, you know, focused in on, on the thing that was causing her the trouble and she didn't need any additional testing. And so I think that is one of the, a good example of what that looks like that would save the healthcare system money instead of doing a procedure where we aspirated that spot or, you know, additional MRI or whatever that would have cost the system more money. So there's, that's just one small example. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. That sounds like just the perfect example, um, really. And along with that, kind of what does the the process look like of an OT working in primary care? Would you see clients like this maybe just one time um, or would you see them more than once or how would that kind of work? Well, what I generally try to say is that if you're actually an OT in primary care, you need to be careful not to be an outpatient therapist because I think we have really good therapists and a good system for outpatient therapy. So if someone needs OT three times a week for three weeks, I don't think that should be done there unless there's no other access for the patient. You're in a really rural area. They don't have insurance that will cover it. I mean, I think there are always exceptions, but I think we need to be careful that we're not, you know, providing outpatient therapy when it's accessible. But usually, you know, I kind of have called it a quick hit of OT. So uh, I think that you, you know, you do an evaluation and an intervention at the same time. I think you focus primarily on whatever complaint that brought the patient in or what you believe is really impacting them, even if they don't realize that. I don't envision it doesn't work to do an incredibly long history and physical and a full body assessment. Because if, if we're doing it right and we're fully integrated, then we have to remember that hopefully this patient will come back again and again across their lifetime. So you may identify 10 things that need to be fixed, but if you tell the person all 10, they're not going to do any of them and they're not going to see you. So I tend to focus really on the thing that brought them in or the thing I understand is most impacting them, even if they don't. And I usually see people just once um, or twice. There's often a phone call follow-up in there. And then, you know, again, if, if, for example, one of the patients that I saw the, the, the most number of times when I was working in a federally qualified health center was a patient who had severe mental health challenges. She had many diagnoses and she had been hospitalized for 60 days, she, which is really rare. She had been in a day hospitalization for almost 60 days and she just really had no other resources. There was nothing else available. And so I saw her two to three times a week for probably six weeks, but that was the only time that happened and it was because she had no other resources. This is really helping my understanding of primary care, and I'm sure it is for um, our listeners as well. You know, another piece I would add is that each day looks different, and for me, that's what's fun. But as I became, you know, when I first get to these clinics, um, you know, it's usually on a referral basis. So the physician will say, I think I need you, or I will identify from the diagnosis, the chart review that I need to see the patient. And 
I've, I tell this story a lot, so I won't repeat it, but uh, the best way when you get to a new clinic for someone who's just starting is to see the patients with the physician. It makes the physicians really uncomfortable because they're not sure what you're looking at. But then that helps them see what you do when you start asking questions about habit and routine, when you make recommendations about good body mechanics to, to pick up your child so that you don't hurt your, you know, increase your low back pain or, or you quickly demonstrate a sock aid for someone who's moderately obese and has low back pain. And within, you know, three seconds, they can get their sock on um, and it reduces the strain on their back. Once the physician starts seeing that, then they will often you know, they refer better to you or they'll bring you in more often. But once you dis establish that trust and they know that they can count on you and they know you know your boundaries, what is appropriate for that team, then a lot of times you will see patients before the physician. And I think, again, that is the best. So a patient who, who's already been diagnosed with depression and they're coming in for a checkup, I can do that. I can do that checkup. I can ask them how their medication is going, how their symptoms are. I can talk about their daily routines, about their engagement in occupation, about self-management of symptoms. And then if they need a medication adjustment, then I go out and I get someone qualified to do that, the PharmD, you know, the PA, the MD. So I think it's really important that you have to establish trust with the team. But once you've established that trust, then I think you assert your ability to have more independence and to be a more equal team member. Yeah, that sounds like a great process and a great recommendation to establish trust with the team and really demonstrate the value of OT's unique skill set um, in order to kind of establish your role more fully. And even before that, Sherry, say, you know, there's a young OT practitioner out there who wants to break into primary care. Um, how would you recommend they go about that? Well, it's always challenging, of course, um, because there are so few people doing it, but I do think it's getting easier. And I think, again, what you need to remember is that you need to demonstrate your value to the team. It's not because you want to help people or because you're, you know, really sweet or dedicated. It's not those things. So I think the first place that you start is really understanding the mission and the vision of the organization where you want to go and also sort of begin to understand their funding sources and how they need um, to meet whatever kind of standards it is. So for example, there was a young woman in Oklahoma who really wanted to work in a, a homeless shelter and a primary care clinic attached to that that really supported the homeless shelter. And when I spoke to her, I'm like, well, what's their mission or vision? And, and what, are, what are their standards that they have to meet to get their grant funding from the state? And she didn't know those things. And so she went back and she did a lot of research on that. She got a really thorough understanding of the metrics that the organization needed to meet. And then she was able to um, develop a really great sales pitch, a really great presentation about how she could help them meet their metrics. 
So I think that's an important piece. You need to have a thorough understanding of the organization where you're going or you want to go. And then you develop your um, presentation to help them understand what you can provide for them. And then you may have to demonstrate that. And so I think some of the folks who have been most successful getting hired actually started on a volunteer basis. So they, um, I had one lady who worked um, her full-time job four days a week, and then she volunteered in this clinic for free on the fifth day. Um, she had a lot of vacation time built up, and she just started using a day of vacation every Friday, let's say, and went to this clinic. And I I always stress that you need to go in and say, when you do that, that this is time limited. I'm willing to come for six weeks or eight weeks and demonstrate how I can be valuable to you. And then at the, as we approach the end of that time, then we can talk about a paid position or how you can support me being here because people will take you for free forever of course and so you need to start your process up front with giving them a time limit and then almost always you know the OTs have demonstrated their value and so the organizations then have worked really hard to figure out how they can um, support them and hire them either through grant funding through the chronic care management program of Medicare that brings in sometimes um, quite a bit of extra funding to an organization through the value-based payment systems um, where you help them meet their um, metrics. So I think that's why it's important to understand the payment model. And then I would stress that OT and primary care can bill their CPT codes just like in every other setting. Um, we just don't have a lot of research or a lot of data yet to show how successful that is. So there are folks around the nation who are gathering that data. We just don't have enough of it yet, um, you know, to make broad statements about how successful that um, billing is. Okay, awesome. That's great information. So OTs can bill using C their CPT codes and also, I believe there's a way to bill under a physician billing number for OTs to get reimbursed as well. Is that correct? There is. And that's called incident two billing. So incident TO. Um, and that means incident to the physician. And so you're actually billing under the physician's provider number. There are very few rules about that. I mean, they have to have seen the patient first. These are all online. You can find them at Medicare. You know, they have to have seen the patient first. They have to make the referral. They have to be available for consultation. Um, that's the easiest mechanism, to be honest. That's the easiest mechanism. The, the bad part about that, the reason I frown upon it, is that then there, there is no data in the, in, the, in the healthcare system about what an OT is doing. So if you're billing under your CPT code, you're under an OT provider number. And then those folks who analyze the big data sets, they'll see the OT. But if you go to, you know, Dr. Smith's practice, and over the year that you're there, his outcomes are dramatically better, but you've been billing under his provider number, there is no 
record that an OT may have made that difference, if that makes sense. So it's the easiest way to bill under the, the incident two billing, but it is the least helpful for our profession and for the healthcare system. Okay. So maybe a good way to get the foot in the door, but not something you'd want to do permanently. Right. Or, or you need to be really good at uh, record keeping so that at some point you can go back and evaluate the patients that you've seen and look at their outcome measures. But a lot of OTs really, you know, are intimidated by that process or don't, don't think they have the skill level to do that kind of assessment. It it does sound like it could be a lot. Yeah. Um, But definitely good information. And I want to ask you, Sherry, um, if you could share kind of what your personal occupational therapy and primary care sales pitches, what you might say to someone. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, so I always like to talk with the physicians if I can, you know, get an appointment with them and I, I, you know, make nice first and give them a description of occupational therapy, which, you know, everyone always has, they think they know what it is, but they, they don't. And then I usually ask them, tell me about your outcomes. How are you doing? And, and they'll, you know, they're usually like, well, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, you know, all your patients who have diabetes, they're all, they're all really compliant with their medication. They follow the diet and healthcare exercise recommendations. Like they're really good, right? And there was like, no, God, no, of course not. Nobody, you know, nobody does what we tell them to do. And, um, and I'm like, okay, well, let's think about that. So what, like, why are your diabetic clients why are they why are they like why don't they follow your rules well they don't eat what they're supposed to they don't get enough exercise you know and they list all these things and I, and I always like listen intently and, and then I'll say so they like they have bad behaviors right they have bad habits and poor routines and they don't they don't do the things that they need and they're like yes exactly they you know they have bad habits and and, and bad behavior you know and, and I'm like okay so and I always give a dramatic pause. So who in your practice specializes in habits and routines? And then there's always a moment where they cock their head and they look at me and they're like, what? And I'm like, well, you just told me that the reason your clients don't get better is because they have bad habits, routines, and behaviors. And I want to know who on your team specializes in that. And then they, you know, you see the light bulb come on and they're like, well, no one, I guess, no one. And, I'm, and I just smile and I say, and that's what occupational therapy do. That's what an occupational therapist does. We specialize in roles, routines, habits, and behavior. And, and then I just wait. And it's a beautiful moment. Like they're like, oh my goodness, you're right. You know, and I can give them many examples of how we've helped change people's habits where we um, help them set up a routine that works for them instead of saying you need to eat better. I can help them figure out how to cook on Sunday to pack their lunch, healthy lunch all week or whatever it is. And so it's, to me, it's been a very effective sales pitch because they Once you put it that way, once you focus them on the reasons that folks 
are non-compliant, and I used air quotes with that, non-compliant, or don't get better, it's all about habit and routine. And it's hard to make changes in our world when we're so busy. And so if you have someone who can proactively help you or, or see you as a whole being instead of just someone who's overweight and needs to eat better or someone who has depression and if you just take your medicine, you'll miraculously better, which we all know is not true. So to me, that's a great sales pitch. It's been incredibly effective because we are... We are the only profession whose whole focus is on habits and routines. That's such an awesome way to put it. And I think it's such a, an eloquent way to kind of help other people understand our value. As OTs, we all know we can make a difference in people's lives, but other professions don't always know how we can do that. That's right. And the other thing I think is important about that, that little spiel is that so many OTs um, tell me that they're too intimidated to go into primary care. Oh, I don't have enough knowledge. I don't have enough skill. I don't, but we do all of us. When you leave school, you deeply understand habits and routines and activities of daily living. The other stuff a lot of it, you can Google that. God bless the internet, right? I don't know what arthrogryposis is anymore because I'm old. So I Google it. Oh yeah, I got that, you know, or whatever it is. I, I, that was actually a patient and that wasn't about her diagnosis because she was in her forties, but it was about that she had broken every bone in her body. She had multiple limits in range of motion and in 20 minutes, I showed her lower extremity um, adaptive equipment to dress her lower body, and it changed her world. So it's, it wasn't about me what, knowing what to do with that diagnosis in an adult. It was really about what she needed and wanted to be able to do in her daily life. And almost every OT is qualified to do that. That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that example as well. And I want to ask you now, Sherry, if there's any resources um, or places you'd like to turn uh, listeners' attention to, they want to learn more about some of your research or primary care in general. I think there have been some really nice articles that have come out recently. And there was a December is issue in, from AOTA, AJOT, um, that was focused on primary care uh, last year, I believe it was, but an entire issue. There's been several articles in OJOT, the online journal of OT, which is free. If folks don't know about that, it's open to everyone. And then I actually did um, here at the University of Arkansas, there is a like a three-hour it's not quite three hours, but I talk too much, um, presentation on OT and primary care, and it really is much more in-depth. Um, and you can find that, you know, just by, by Googling OT and primary care in my name, and that should come up. And um, we made it really cost-effective. Um, it's only, I think it's $29.99 or something like that, $35. We made it really affordable 
um, in the hopes that OTs across the nation would listen to it and be inspired to investigate this area of practice. And then I'm always available to, to encourage people to provide some guidance. I know that there are several places, you know, our next step is to really get some fieldwork sites, level two fieldwork sites or capstone. And I know several of the uh, OT education programs across the nation are working on that. And I know that um, there are several hospital systems who have now started OT in primary care. And I've talked with those OTs and the goal is really after they're, they're there and they get their feet wet, their goal is to take uh, level two students and capstone students. So I think once, I think we're sort of on the brink of some really amazing things because once we get that critical mass of OTs in the systems, then I think we're gonna really get that, that snowball rolling. That's awesome. Thank you so much. And I'll do my best to provide some of these links in the episode description for our listeners as well, um, along with maybe a link to your, your uh, information page and CV at University of Arkansas. That would be great. I appreciate that. Yeah, of course. Let's see. Before we move on to our last segment, Sherry, I want to ask if there's any other clinical examples that you'd like to share. Another one that I think is just a really... Um, good example is, you know, again, we have to be honest that Sherry is not an expert in pediatrics. It's very intimidating to me. But I had a, the, one of the doctors come and get me and said, look, I have this little four-month-old who I think has had a stroke. And I need you to come and look at him and, um, you know, tell me what you think and see if there's any recommendations you can give to his parents. Um, for what to, you know, what to do with him while we get him referred. And so I went in and it was very clear that something traumatic had happened. His left arm was um, very uh, tight, very straight, and it was out sort of to his side or behind him a little bit. And the way that the it was mostly his arm, his leg had a little bit of tone, but not nearly as much as that arm. And his parents were being so careful with that side with his left side that they had his his right side up against their chest and the way they were holding him allowed that left arm and leg to really be hypertonic and really sticking out there and so you know I looked at the doctor and gave a head nod like yes this is something dramatic has happened to this kid over the last 24 hours so he was stepped out to you know make those referrals and get him quickly seen but I said to the you know I took the child and I did some you know evaluation of the arm and the leg and I said to them look what we don't want to do is let this tightness set in. So I'm gonna, what I want you to do, and I showed them some real gentle range of motion um, that they could do, and especially how to hold him with that left side up against them so that we could bring that arm into midline, bend that elbow, help him hold the bottle. You know, um, just all of the motions that his, I explained all of the motions that his right side is doing the unaffected side we really want that left arm to mirror that when possible so we don't want to let that stiffness you know get worse we need to be bringing that in and i showed them some real just gentle and easy ways to do that nothing dramatic 
And then I said, you know, I'm not sure, you know, what, where you're going to be sent to from here, but what I want you to critically understand is that what you don't allow is for them to do some testing and then send you home without a referral to PT and OT or, you know, for at least a significant, um, evaluation so that they can teach you the things that you can do at home while you're working your way through the system. And the doctor heard that. He was very supportive of that. I mean, you know, too often in our, in our um, medical culture, we send someone for tests and then we send them home to wait for the results. And then, you know, five days later, we'll do something or, you know, I was just, um, I was really worried that they would, you know, if it wasn't an acute bleed or something, that they would just send them home to wait for a referral. And so the doctor heard that. He promised to be an advocate for them. Um, and we got them right along into the next level of care. But we also then, um, I think, paved the way for, um, for additional intervention that was outside of our office that I thought they needed. Yeah, that's a beautiful example of really you providing clinical expertise, education, and advocacy for those clients, um, which I think is a, a great example of practicing at the top of your license. Um, so thank Good. you so much. I think so too. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, of course. I just think we see the world differently, right? I've always said that OTs see the world differently and primary care is an amazing place where you get to use all of those skills. And so it's it, tremendously exciting and challenging at the same time. I can definitely see that. And Sherry, it's now time for our golden nugget segment on the show, which is where I ask you if you could tell practitioners to do one thing, what would it be? Oh, goodness. Um, I guess I would say that I want you to be so confident in the education and the skills that you have. So I want... I want us as a profession to be much more, to, for every practitioner to be much more kindly assertive so that we are demanding is a strong word, where we are insisting, where we're demonstrating that we really can work at the top of our license and to not allow ourselves to be relegated to small pieces of, of what's easily understandable or what's easily reimbursable. But I think we have to be advocates for our patients and our profession. And we have to start pushing back against these systems and these policies that are forcing us to provide inadequate care. I think we're seeing a lot of this now with the PDPM and the, you know, a lot of the new legislation that's coming out and we have to be advocates for the people who need us. So please be confident about what you know, be assertive about where you need to be, and be a tremendous advocate for your patients. Thank you so much again for sharing your expertise um, and your knowledge uh, in, in this area. I really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. I, I'm, I'm glad to be here very much. Thank you. Of course. And is there anything else you'd like to add for our listeners? 
You know, just one small nugget, I think that I try to always stress the importance of being members of our national and state organizations. My PhD is in public policy and administration because I think that I went for that degree because I, I don't think everyone practitioners, patients, people don't really understand the profound impact of policy and legislation on our practice and access of our patients. And unless you're reading all the bills that go through the House and Senate at the state and federal level, and I don't, and I don't think you are either, we need to rely on those state organizations and, and AOTA to do that. And they've made some tremendous gains for us over the last few years. And so if you're very upset about what your practice looks like now, I would ask you to see if you're supporting the, the people who are advocating for us and trying to, trying to get that legislative changes for us. Yes, thank you. That's a that's a great nugget to leave off on. Thanks for listening to How to OT. Tune in next time for another episode where we bring accessible and consumable research straight to you. I'm on vacation every single day because I love my occupation. I'm on vacation every single day, every every single day. So thankful for everything Rejuvenating my inner light as I work hard for all I need Open arms, embracing life and all the weight you gave to me I work, it pays off, I'm happy now, it's paying me Close my eyes, sometimes I feel as if I blow away I love life, I live and enjoy the ride along the way I'll make a living out of living, yeah that's what I say I got one life to live and I wouldn't live in no other way Every single day, cause I love my occupation. Hey, I'm on vacation. Every single day, every every single day. Hey, I'm on vacation. Every single day, cause I love my occupation. Hey, I'm on vacation. If you don't like your life, then you should go and change it. Should go and change it if you don't like your life then you should go and change it if you don't like your life then you should go and change it